professor of philosophy at East Tennessee State University. My guest this evening is John Haldane, professor of philosophy at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and he's going to be explaining why he is a theist. Glad to have you with us, John. Glad to be with you. I think it might be helpful for the listeners if you'd begin by telling us a little bit about the nature of your religious background before we begin to talk about the, the more philosophical issues. Sure, that's a good idea. I also think actually it's, it's relevant because the kind of philosophical approach uh, that I want to follow is one that is informed by particular religious ideas. Uh, I'm a Roman Catholic of a fairly unreconstructed sort, an Orthodox Roman Catholic who uh, uh, holds to the principal teachings of the Church as those are expressed in the creeds, common Christian creeds, but also believes in the teaching authority of the Church including the special teaching authority that's associated with the papacy. So, uh, in terms of religious identity, I come out as a straight-down-the-line Roman Catholic. My education uh, influenced that. I, from the age of eight, I went to school with the Jesuits, and so for uh, nine years, in fact, was in the hands of Jesuits, and of course it's uh, famously said, of the Jesuits, give us the boy and we will give you the man. And uh, I think perhaps in this case uh, that was uh, that was lived out, that particular uh, maxim. Interestingly, uh, my background is somewhat mixed. My father was uh, a Presbyterian, and indeed his father, and so on back. In fact, my grandfather was a Grand Master of the Masonic Lodge, which uh, in Scotland is associated with a view of Christianity that is very unsympathetic to Roman Catholicism. Indeed, uh, I can remember my grandfather uh, telling me that the reason why the Pope wore long dresses, as he put it, was that he had cloven hooves. So uh, my grandfather was certainly of the view that the Pope was the Antichrist. Uh, nonetheless, uh, my father converted to Roman Catholicism, and my mother was already Roman Catholic, and I was brought up in the west of Scotland attending Jesuit schools uh, and uh, being formed in a certain intellectual tradition. And my theism uh, has developed and grown in part through spirituality and religion, but also through philosophical reflection on the tenets of that tradition. Okay. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit about that. I mean, one of the parts of that tradition has to do with the relationship between the authority of the church, the philosophical justification for one's belief in the nature of religious experience. Could you tell us a little bit about what your views are? Yes. Um, I think that uh, in matters of religion there is a danger of oversimplification. I think often people uh, seek a fairly simple and straightforward message that they can uh, embrace, or indeed that perhaps they can reject. I mean, it's rather as if in a restaurant, you know, you want, where, where the food is unfamiliar, you want a good, clear, straightforward account of what it is you'd be getting if you ordered uh, number 32, or whatever it might be. Um, the trouble is that in the case of religion, uh, religious ideas have developed and evolved. They're rich, they're very complex. Each generation adds its own understanding. And so any religious idea of any significance will have a long tradition standing behind it. And it will be shaped and formed by different sorts of things. The experience of individuals, uh, scripture, uh, the lives of saints or great figures, 
uh, philosophical reflection and so on. Now, the kind of belief in God that I have, what philosophers would call theism, a belief in a creator God who sustains the universe, who is a personal God, that doesn't just, as were, pop into my head from, from nowhere, and nor has it been arrived at simply from philosophical reflection. Rather, uh, I uh, have grown up in a long tradition of that sort of reflection, as I say, the Roman Catholic one, but this would be true of other Christian denominations and other non-Christian religions also. So what I want to say is this, is that religious experience is a part of what shapes uh, a religion and which then in turn helps to form people in that religion. Religious experience is a part, scripture is a part, reflection is a part, and so on. But one can't, I think, give uh, sole primacy to any one of these. You can't say that in essence what it's about is scripture, or in essence what it's about is experience, or in essence what it's about is argument and reasoning, and so on. And part of the reason you can't is that any attempt to do so will find itself foundering. It'll find itself uh, looking for support from the other parts. So, for example, let's take scripture, which will be uh, perhaps of special interest to listeners in your part of the world. Um, any attempt to rest belief on scripture has to answer the question, which scriptures? What's canonical? Uh, is, is this to be regarded as apocryphal or is this to be regarded as part of the authentic scripture? Now, how was that resolved? Um, it's no good having a piece of scripture that says in it, this is the real one. Several can say that. So we have to use experience and understanding to try to determine in the first instance uh, which scripture is to be attended to. And then along with that, we have to interpret that scripture. And that interpretation, again, brings to bear experience and understanding. And equally, if we try to say rest it all on experience, uh, say rather than scripture, well, uh, famously, people's experiences can lead them in all sorts of directions. People can just become straight crazy. So experiences have to be validated and tested, tested against the belief of a community, tested against scripture, tested against reasoning, and so on. So what I want to say is that each of these, scripture, reasoning, teaching authority, a tradition, uh, people's ordinary experience and their reflective prayer and so on, all of these come together uh, in a tradition and uh, the high points in each then come themselves come together to form the core of that religion. And that's what somebody who's introduced to that religion uh, uh, is offered. And you know, it's a lifetime's work trying to understand that and make sense of it and integrate one's own personal experiences and reasoning and so on. All right, one, one aspect of that I'd like to pursue a little bit in saying that you need to have reasoning or understanding or philosophical reflection implies that there has to be, I don't know if the language here is, is a ground or an undergirding, but there has to be some kind of rational justification in order to say that religious belief is reasonable or acceptable. Whereas a number of listeners anyway might have been brought up in traditions which emphasizes faith, which is often seen or construed as belief without reason. What What is your view on the relationship or the role that faith plays, the role that reason ought to play in one's religious beliefs? Well, I certainly think that faith is, is very important, and I take a rather traditional and indeed orthodox, as I said earlier on, I regard myself as an orthodox Catholic, traditional Catholic, um, 
I take a traditional view of faith, and, and this is one that I think um, those of your listeners who are Christians, although we might differ in religious denomination and, and belief, we would probably agree on this, that faith is a supernatural gift given by God. Uh, faith is not a matter uh, of reasoning, but it's something, on my view, that reason should inform and guide and direct. So um, I see these two things as working together, that the, there's a God-given human intellect, and it's part of that, part of the task that God has given us, to use our intellect to try to reason about the world and reason to his existence. But that that reason uh, of itself is insufficient to provide the richness of a religious life. That a religious life, as it were, is a condition of being, what theologians would call a condition of grace. And to be raised up to that condition of grace requires a supernatural gift, and that is what faith is. So I think that uh, with my philosopher colleagues, where we might debate these matters, I could imagine perhaps one colleague coming to agreement with me that maybe there is reason to believe that there is a God, but I wouldn't call that of itself faith. In order for that belief to be transformed into faith, there has to be a raising up to a condition of grace, and that's something that, that God does, that's a gift that God bestows. Now, um, if I could perhaps just say one other thing about this. It's my view that unless the belief is defensible, rationally defensible, then we have a very serious problem. And I'll put it this way. There is a well-known challenge to religion called the argument from evil. And the argument from evil says, look, there can't be a good God of the sort you describe, uh, given the kind of evil there is in the world. A good God wouldn't let that happen. Well, uh, that's something we might want to discuss later on, but let me just uh, introduce a, another objection that's a little like that, what I'll call the argument from ignorance. And the argument from ignorance would say this, there can't be a God if it's impossible to know that God, because a good God wouldn't create a world in which it was impossible for people to come to have knowledge of them. And indeed, uh, traditionally Christians have believed that they are an image of God, Imago Dei, this is something that is shared with Jews also, the idea that in some sense human beings are created in the image of God. Now what does that mean? Well it doesn't mean that God is you know, somewhere between five and six foot. What it means, I take it, is that we are like God in being uh, thinking, willing beings. Of course our thinking and our willing are much reduced from that of, of God. But somebody then who wanted to suggest that reason couldn't get us to God has to answer this question, why did God make us rational animals? And what sort of God would it be that made knowledge of him impossible for us? So for that reason, I think a religious believer really has to be committed to the idea that it is at any rate in principle possible to come by means of reason to know of the existence of God. Just one further thought to add to that, however, I don't think that it's uh, a requirement for each person that they should be able to go through that reasoning. And this is where a religious tradition in the church becomes important again. I think it's a requirement that it be possible for someone, one or more people, to reason to that conclusion. And so one needs to belong to a religious community in which you think that, okay, maybe I can't do it, but somewhere, sometime, somebody can do it, and they can transmit that in whatever way through the community. Would, let me ask you this real quick. I don't know if we want to get too far off in this. 
if I'm going to be an individual believer, though, and I'm going to say, well, someone ought to be able to give an account of why it's rational to believe in God, should I not at least have some reason to think that someone is able to give that kind of sure. account? Sure, and I think that what that means is that one has a responsibility oneself to reason about these questions um, and to do the best one can. But what I'm saying is this. Somebody shouldn't give up on religion because they themselves can't reason through, uh, can't produce some proof that will you know, satisfy the world. Um, but somebody who thinks there is reason to believe that there is a God ought also to think that uh, even if they can't see it through, it is at least in principle possible to demonstrate the existence of God. Because if one came to the conclusion that it wasn't in principle possible to demonstrate the existence of God, then I think one would be face this, as I called it, this challenge from ignorance. Surely if there were a God, that creator God wouldn't cut himself off from the rational animals he's, he's created in the way that he would have cut himself off if it was impossible for them to come to know of his existence through reason. Okay. Let me pause briefly for the bit of any, anyone who may be tuning in late. This is Ideas and Issues. My guest this evening is John Haldane, Professor of Philosophy at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and he's explaining to us why he is a theist. In fact, this is a, a, a good place to move into the next section of the program. You said that, that people ought to be, that someone ought in principle to be able to give a rational justification of belief in God, and in uh, a recent book uh, which you co-authored, you feel as if you've done that. Obviously, we can't, in the program, completely cover all the, uh, the arguments, but could you give us a brief summary of the principal rational reasons why you think there is a God? Certainly. Um, I think, broadly speaking, there are two kinds of reasons for believing in the existence of God. Historically, people have offered all sorts of arguments, but uh, in part because we, we don't have the time, but also I'm not myself convinced by all of those. Let me just reduce it to two. And there will be, I think, familiar to many of your readers, at least in broad outline, and sorry to your listeners, at least in broad outline. Uh, one uh, argument starts off with the fact that there is something, whereas there might have been nothing. This style of argument, sometimes called cosmological argument, really says, look, there must be a cause of things. If there weren't, there wouldn't be anything. That cause itself can't be caused, or else we'd just go back now, we'd have a chain of causes. There must ultimately be something that is an uncaused cause of being. Well, that's one kind of argument. Uh, I think that some versions of it uh, get into difficulties, but I think that there is that it has power. But I won't pursue that just now. Let me talk about the second style of argument. The second style of argument starts not from the existence of the world, but from the character of the world. It says that there are some features of the world that call for an explanation, and science isn't capable of giving that kind of explanation. And these are uh, sometimes known as teleological arguments, from the Greek telos, arguments from the fact that the world seems to be purposeful or directed towards an end, but more often they're just referred to as design arguments. Now, uh, what I try to develop is a version of a design argument, and it's unusual in as much as it's a rather older style design argument. A brief history of this is as follows. Until the 19th century, people tended to argue for the existence of God 
from the apparent design of organs, animals, and so on. And then along came Darwin, and somehow Darwin, Darwin's evolutionary theory seemed to knock that out, because if there could be an evolutionary and naturalistic explanation of the human eye, let us say, then it didn't look as if you needed a designer to account for that. So, although there are quite a number of theists around, believers in the existence of God, philosophers, who would argue uh, from certain features of the order that they find in the universe, the kind of order they look to is, let's say, the laws of nature. They would tend not to look at um, the organization of animals, the nature of animals, and so on, these older features of design. But in fact, I uh, try to develop an older style argument. And one way of uh, putting that very briefly is I try to devise a creationist argument. I try to say that evolutionary theory is inadequate. And uh, I try to do that at three, in three places. I say that there isn't a good naturalistic or evolutionary explanation of the emergence of living things out of inanimate, unliving matter. Secondly, there isn't a, an adequate scientific or naturalistic explanation of the development of species. And thirdly, there isn't and there isn't going to be an adequate naturalistic explanation of the emergence or evolution of rational animals. So, if you like, you can't get life out of matter, you can't get species out of life, and you can't get rational animals out of non-rational animals other than through the agency of a creator. Okay. Let, let me ask a minute. I, I don't know that I want to get uh, into details of specifically why you think those evolutionary arguments don't work. But I'm curious, suppose an evolutionist came along that did provide what you took to be convincing arguments for how species arose, of how life arose from non-life, and how thinking matter arose from non-thinking matter. Would that give you reason to abandon your religiosity? Well, that's a, an interesting uh, question. Let me try to address two aspects of it very briefly. First, uh, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that uh, recently I had written, co-authored a book. In fact, we should say a little bit about the structure of that book. It is, in fact, a debate. Uh, it, it's in a, a series called Great Debates in Philosophy. The title of it is Atheism and Theism, and what we have are two authors, uh, a very distinguished British author now living in Australia, J.G.C. Smart, representing the atheist case, and me representing the case for theism. And the book takes the form of an initial presentation of his arguments for atheism, initial presentation of my arguments for theism, and then a re his reply to me and my reply to him. So the sort of worries that uh, you and, and listeners might, you know, might occur to them, uh, objections to my view, many of these are in fact raised by Smart uh, in his contribution, and I try to discuss them there. But let me take the one that you've uh, presented. There's a an old worry about the kinds of arguments that I try to offer, sometimes put by saying what you're trying to develop is a god of the gaps. And what that means is this, you're trying to point to gaps in our scientific explanations, say, look, these are not accounted for by contemporary science, so God has to fill those gaps. 
Now that is a very dangerous strategy because the history of science tends to be a history of filling in the gaps in scientific explanation. So I should just make clear that the style of my argument is not here's a gap so it must be God that fills it but rather here's something not that science hasn't explained but that science couldn't explain and I try to show in the book why that's the case, why it is that uh, it's not just that evolutionary theory hasn't done it yet but it's of its very nature it couldn't do it. So I, I go into that in part to say that I don't expect that somebody is going to come along with the kind of explanations mm. that you, you, you postulate there because I think and I've tried to show there just couldn't be such explanations. But supposing I'm wrong, supposing uh, along comes someone and they say, okay, look, I understand what you were saying, but in fact, here's the kind of explanation you were looking for. It's a wholly naturalistic one and so on. Where would that uh, leave me? Well, I think uh, it would do damage to my position, and not just as a philosopher. I think if I came to the conclusion that these and other arguments of the existence of God didn't work, then I would start to worry that no argument for the existence of God is going to work. And for the reason I gave earlier on, if I thought there couldn't be an argument for the existence of God, then my theism would start to crumble. Because it's part of my view that if there is a good God of the sort that Christians and others believe in, and if we are creatures of that God, endowed with reason, made in the image of that God, then it's part and parcel of that that it should be possible to reason the existence of that God. If we are not of that sort, then my belief in such a creator God would start to crumble. You put it in terms of would my religiosity survive? Of course, religiosity is sometimes thought of as a character trait or habit or whatever it might be. I suppose one might say, would I still go to Mass? Well, I don't know what I, whether I would. What I wonder is whether I should under those circumstances. Okay. Could you give us an I know that's very difficult to do, but perhaps a two-minute, uh, three-minute explanation of why you think science couldn't fill those gaps, to use your language. Uh, well, that's quite a tall order. Um, let me, I mean, I mentioned that I think there are three uh, places where science gives out, if you like. One is the emergence of life, second is the evolution of species, and third is the particular emergence of rational animals. Would it be helpful to focus on maybe one of those? Yes, I, I think that the most helpful to focus on might be the second. And that, uh, in part also because it, it touches upon uh, the kind of creationist debate that has run in part in the US <coughs> in, in the past. Let me try to put it uh, in a way that I'm conscious will seem unsatisfactory. It's very brief and so on. What I'd say is this. Nobody, no believer in evolution, thinks that species emerge by single steps. Nobody thinks that, as it might be, wolves turn into dogs in a single generation. What they believe is that there is a slow and progressive evolution of one species out of another. Now, in order for that to be the case, it has to be that uh, reproduction preserves a good deal of the nature of the uh, species uh, but also allows for development and change within it. Now for that to happen there has to be reproduction and there have to be reproductive organs but the evolution of reproductive organs is one of the things that needs an explanation and part of the difficulty for the evolution of species is that 
in order for that to happen, there has to be some system, as I say, of replication or reproduction. But systems of replication and reproduction are precisely the sorts of things that need an evolutionary explanation. So if you like, the evolutionary theorist is caught in this bind. They need existing reproductive organs in order to explain the evolution of species, but they need to, they can't invoke the idea that those reproductive organs were bestowed by God, clearly. They need to say that those reproductive organs are themselves the result of evolution over many, many uh, generations. But of course, the production of generations, one after another, calls for some system of reproduction. So I could put it this way, the evolutionary theorist really has a problem trying to explain the emergence of reproductive beings, creatures that can uh, replicate themselves. What they tend to try to do is to say, well, we go from reproduction to, as it were, some primitive form of reproduction, and from that to some form of replication and so on, and they try to see it as something that gradually emerges. But without going into this now, there are real difficulties with that. I don't say this argument is utterly conclusive, but it seems to me it's a good place to start in worrying about evolutionary explanations. I do say in the book that I am a kind of creationist, but it's not part of my view uh, to say that the universe was brought into being 5,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, whatever it might be. I don't dispute the scientific facts about the history of the universe. What I dispute is the adequacy of scientific explanations of the evolutionary history of the universe. Okay. Uh, that was one tall order. Let me try another one, because we're, we're down to about two and a half minutes to go here. One of the things you said earlier is that you mentioned the cosmological argument, the existence of God, that, that why does, is there a universe here at all? And at least one of the worries historically about that sort of argument is it may tell you there's a grand creator, but it doesn't tell you much about the attributes mm -hmm. of that creator. You've relied upon a design argument of the existence of God that talks about the character of the existence that's here and that that's often been used to talk about certain characteristics of God or at least related to the ideas of characteristics of God, uh, intelligence, and, and perhaps also goodness. Very early in the program, you said something about the problem of evil and that you thought that there was an answer to the problem of evil. And I take it it's tied up and related in some ways to your view of God that emerges from the design argument. Could you very quickly try to explain how we would explain the existence of evil given the God that emerges through the design argument? Okay, well this is going to be very brief. Uh, I follow tradition in distinguishing between two kinds of evil, so-called natural evils and moral evils. Moral evils being those that uh, are attributable to agency, uh, either demonic agency, one might say, or more familiarly, human agency. What I have to say about that is in terms of free will and choice and so on. So let me address the question of uh, natural evil, earthquakes, disease, uh, the fact that animals eat one another and so on. And sometimes people have supposed that, you know, if God were really up to it, then uh, he'd be able to create a world of three of these sorts of things. What I'd say about that is this, that it's a consequence of God's designing animals that have a life, that those animals interact in ways that are to the advantage of some and to the disadvantage of others. Now somebody might say, well, couldn't that be uh, otherwise? Couldn't, for example, God have provided abundant fruit on the earth so that you know, animals then weren't eating one another or something of this sort? But notice, even on that scheme, the fruit's going to end up being eaten. If you like, 
my view is this, that in the scheme of things, it's of the nature of this that some parts of creation flourish at the expense of other parts of the creation, and that that isn't something that's uh, avoidable. Now, somebody might say, well, that's a bit tough on some bits, isn't it, and other bits benefit. And here I think I want to say something that is very traditional, which is that there is a hierarchy in creation, and that um, indeed it's the case that some sorts of creatures flourish at the expense of other parts of the creation, but that that isn't itself a bad thing. That's part of what God designed, um, and the pinnacle of that design is that rational animals should be the ultimate high point of that flourishing system. Okay, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. I've been speaking this evening with John Haldane, Professor of Philosophy at the University of St. Andrews, Scotland. This is Hugh Follett for Ideas and Issues. Good evening. Thank you.